Hello, I'm Seth M. Siegel. Welcome to the Let There Be Water podcast, a conversation featuring ideas and solutions to some of the world's most pressing water issues. I have the pleasure of speaking today with Pat Mulroy, the longtime head of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. Pat Mulroy took the water-scarce area in and around Las Vegas and turned it into one of the most successful water districts in the U.S. Beginning in 1991, Pat Mulroy kept the water flowing into Las Vegas and the Bellagio Fountains going. She has been rightly credited with being responsible, in part, for the spectacular growth of Las Vegas, even during a time of severe drought. Pat Mulroy has spoken widely on water policy, and she is now a senior fellow at UNLV's Brookings Mountain West program. Pat, welcome to the Let There Be Water podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pat, I don't know if you uh, warmly recall it or not, but I had the pleasure early on in the research for my book, Let There Be Water, to interview you. And I must say that everything you said set the context for me, and you are, to no small degree, my teacher in questions of water, water management, and most importantly, how politicians and water interact. So if we can start a little with a little bit of history, you did something that I think will have to be a model for the whole country, and that is lots of diverse water districts figuring out ways of coming together. Could you give us some history on how you did that? One of my board members at the time even described it as a modern political miracle, and there was a group of us that deserved the credit for this, along with some elected officials. We went through a process of doing a supply and demand model. We had thought we had plenty of water till about 2025, and as Las Vegas began to grow exponentially, we were becoming quickly aware that we were going to be running out as early as 1992, 1993, and we're sitting here in 1989. And so we went through a process bringing in an outside consultant to just look at the data. And every one of the participants had full access to the model. They could try manipulating it any way they wanted. They could try to come up with different solutions. And after 18 months of looking at all the alternatives, we came to the pretty apparent conclusion that if we came together and we treated water resource not as a competitive commodity, but as a foundational base for the entire community and gave up our priority water rights, we would be able to dramatically increase our supply and make ourselves extremely resilient. There's also lots of stakeholders that have competing interests, environmentalists, agricultural interests, urban developers, citizens living in their homes, Indian tribes perhaps. So how do you reconcile the very disparate interests of all these different parties? How do we handle that aside from the geography and the finance part? Well, in the Colorado River Basin, I think what's happening is there's a recognition emerging that we all depend on the system and that only by finding a new fulcrum and a new balance point can we proactively work to preserve the system rather than follow the old mindset of being reactionary should some terrible drought event happen. And the starkest example of how the various parties have to work together for their own self-interest is if Lake Mead, for example, drops below a certain elevation, no water leaves Hoover Dam. So all those senior right holders that sit in California and in Arizona, those pieces of paper are useless. They've decided not to be a part of the solution and therefore have to suffer excruciating pain. 
So whether you're a tribe, you're an agriculturalist, you're an environmentalist, it is in everybody's collective best interest to come together and put together a proactive plan that prevents the system from crashing. I'm thinking Pat Mulroy for president. Uh, <laughs> My life's not too old. I don't know. No, no, no. And so after achieving this, how did you reckon the fact that districts all over the country didn't look to you as the model and saying, geez, we got to do the exact same thing? You have tens of thousands of water districts in the United States, and you can look to them and figure out that it's part of the problem today. It's not part of the solution. Well, I think we need to even categorize them even slightly differently. Most of the water is managed as a city department. It still has the old 19th century mold that this is a service we provide our residents and we can charge them almost a backdoor tax by not having an equivalent between the water we sell and the cost of the service to provide that water. And I think the first step in beginning to look at reform is for municipalities to retool that model and allowing those to become not-for-profit utilities that are financially self-sufficient, that don't have their financial resources rated at the end of every fiscal year, can look at all the things that if they were an investor-owned utility, they would by definition do. But you're here making the difference between the financial model. I'm thinking of the geographic model. One of the things that concerns me looking to our water future is that we're going to have to look at a larger geographic footprint. Now, I'm not saying necessarily as large as the whole watershed, but that wouldn't be a bad starting point. But when you have water districts that are just a few miles apart from each other in many parts of the country, it's almost impossible that you have some coherence on pricing, coherence on infrastructure, and coherence on long-range planning. So how do we get around that monkey that's on our back right now? I think in many ways climate change will help us get there because the challenges that it's going to bring are going to be more expensive than any one single district can shoulder. And the tools in the toolbox for every one of those individual districts that have some common either source of supply or geographic proximity, that if they can build larger regional systems that they only are paying a piece of, then they will be far more able to securitize the water resources for their customers than they would be if they tried to go it alone. But you're still speaking of this in a futuristic way, that what will happen. I'm wondering if after some 25 years or even more of your successful model, where are the others following on before this catastrophe that forces us into making that decision? And are there others who you see as leaders in this desired movement to consolidate? There are certain countries, and Israel's right at the top of my list, that do have a national water strategy, that have said water is one of our great vulnerabilities and it is one of our top priorities to securitize our water supply in order to feed and keep our people alive and fuel our economies. They got it. And so they built desalination facilities, they built reuse facilities, and they used the planning. They have a national wholesaler, but that because of the size of the country as well. I mean, you couldn't have a national wholesaler in the United States. But the concept that they had a national strategy and put it at the top of their agenda. I mean, Israel and Singapore are probably two areas that have really focused in. And why? Because it is such a vulnerability for them. 
Well, but there's lots of other places that are vulnerable that fail to take any significant action altogether. That's true of lots of countries in the Middle East and also in Asia and also in South America. And perhaps the lesson here is good governance leads to smart policy and what are problems are a proxy for bad governance. That is a conclusion that could be reached. Also, by the way, on Singapore, Singapore is a hard lesson for us to adopt to because of the fact that they don't have any agriculture. So, yes, there's certain things that they do that are really extraordinary, but it's hard to extrapolate from Singapore's model for the rest of the world unless we're going to be importing all of our food selectively. Well, I don't disagree. I'm just saying given their demographics, given the, the way their country developed, they made water a national strategy and developed a water system that will be able to meet the demands of that community and that economy. That's all I'm saying. I, I agree with that. Tell, tell me if you've ever had uh, the thought that perhaps we would do best to have government buy the rights back by compelled purchase back from the rights holders. Have you considered that? We considered it and we threw it out, and here's why. Your grandchildren will be old people before that gets resolved. If you're going to try to disenfranchise someone from either their land or their water in the West, they're going to fight back. By disenfranchising and taking that water quote away from, say, the agricultural sector, which is where a lot of urbanites quickly jump to, you're destroying entire rural communities. I think a very different approach. They don't give up their water rights, but become part of a larger water management strategy voluntarily where the negative impacts can be buttressed, where technology can be applied that allow us to grow food using less water that preserves the overall rural communities and the economic health of those areas. When you use the phrase that farmers would come together voluntarily, there's a sort of an implication of voluntarily or else. So what happens when the farmers say, nope, I'm sorry, I just don't want to opt into this program? Well, then they suffer the consequences. I mean, I think that's one of the great takeaway lessons in California. It didn't have to be this bad. Had the North and the South and the various competing interests thought about preserving the overall system of the state water project, you might have been able to store water, move water, enter into agreements that would have made the pain that they went through and are still going through a whole lot less severe. And you've got no one to blame but yourself. So for each one of these agricultural areas, it's an individual risk assessment. Pat, let me change uh, the focus for a moment and talk about the greater Colorado River community. So you're talking a lot about Nevada. You were instrumental in playing a role that you would think almost the State Department would normally be running and the Department of the Interior figuring out ways of getting the Colorado River to be shared in an equitable way between a number of states and also the country of Mexico. When you were running the Southern Nevada Water Authority, to what extent is groundwater entering into your thinking and should we be thinking about that more? Well, I think groundwater is a critical component. It is both a risk and an opportunity. Groundwater basins make incredible storage areas. They can be replenished in wet years and then relied upon in dry years. And you can have a conversation about water without talking about both surface water and groundwater. For us, we filed on unused, unappropriated perennial groundwater that we knew we would be building facilities to if all else failed on the Colorado River that we would only use in times of real river stress and would aggressively manage the groundwater basins with artificial recharge and infiltration basins 
because we understand that there is a need to conjunctively use groundwater and surface water. Pat, do we need a national water plan? I point out that the last time we had a national water plan was 1973, when our population was smaller and it was much more concentrated in what's today the Rust Belt area, and the drier parts of the country had much smaller populations. Do we need a national water plan today? No, I think it would be counterproductive. I think we need a national water strategy, one that can be very different in different parts of the country. Our climates are very different. Our water resources are very different. One size fits all approach just doesn't work. And what would that national water strategy look like? It is going to be broken into chapters, each one with their objective being to securitize and find a pathway for that area to be able to adapt quickly for the changes that they see coming. When I look at our country, among the things that concern me most is our overpumping of our aquifers. And I'm thinking about places like, of course, the San Joaquin Valley, and even more ominously, what's going on in the High Plains, those eight states that share the massive Ogallala Aquifer. And I wonder if you agree with me that this has been a real failure of governance in not having a plan to slow down the depletion of these aquifers. Well, slowing it down is very difficult, as you well know. But we also never looked at utilizing surface resources in order to recharge those aquifers. I mean, one man's blood is another man's water supply. I've never understood why along a river system like the Mississippi that goes through these massive flood events, there haven't been opportunities to divert some of that water and begin a really aggressive infiltration process into those aquifers. Well, this goes again to a concern that I had, which is there seems to be a failure of governance at both the national and state level in most places where they're not thinking ahead of the curve and they're not preparing for what could be a very dire water future. Well, I think that the issue is we've always had this notion that water is local, and it's not. It is definitely regional, and by not looking at it regionally, there are a lot of missed opportunities. And just look inside the federal government. I mean, water management is so fractionalized. You have the United States Army Corps of Engineers, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Interior. I mean, it goes on and on and on. There are so many different management strategies in each one of these federal agencies, and it is rare that they talk and plan conjunctively. And yet the politicians who have the oversight over this, senators and congressmen and sometimes the input of some governors, they seem to be quite focused perhaps on other resource issues like minerals and certainly energy, oil, gas, coal, but they seem not to be as focused on water. Because we've always taken it for granted. And do you have a theory as to, as to what we could do to switch that around? I think it will naturally happen. Unfortunately, it will happen because a lot of pain and suffering will have occurred. One day, when it, we have a really bad event, hopefully it will then change. Until then, to this day, I sit down with friends in the East Coast, and they don't see it. They just don't see it. So are you optimistic or pessimistic about our water future? I'm actually optimistic, because I think as people increasingly begin to focus on water resources region by region, people will start making the right decisions because there won't be any alternative, because failure is not an option. I mean, we might not like living without energy. We might not like living without our cell phones, but we can survive. Lots of generations have, but we can't survive without water. 
So having gone through and seen the worst that water can bring out in people, but have also seen it transition to some really healthy discussions, I am eternally optimistic that we will find the solutions we need. Pat, that was a fascinating point, and this has been a really fascinating conversation. Do you have any last words for us? Absolutely. Let there be water. Thank you. Let there be water. Pat Mulroy, a pleasure having you on. I hope you'll come back again soon. I will. Thank you so much. This edition of the Let There Be Water podcast was directed by Jamie Black and edited by Morel Frankel, with production assistance by Alexander Lindroth and creative input from Krasimir Galibov. Thank you for listening.